3617 response report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk. I am so happy that you're joining me this week. You know, I have a really, really neat guest on today. His name is Bill Jenkins, and uh, Bill kind of learned the hard way of how trauma affects victims and their families and how us as coroners and police officers giving notification, things like that, uh, affects them personally. When his 16-year-old son uh, was murdered during a robbery at, uh, at a fast food restaurant, and he has a quite a unique story. He he's going to tell about that night. He's going to tell about how the notification went and and where he has placed his energy since then. And he's going to give us some really good advice to police officers and coroners going forward of what we really need to watch out for. And so it's a, it's a great story. Um, not that not that his that Bill's son got killed, but it's that he's able to take that and turn it into a, a focus and energy in a way that impacts us the job that we do uh, as he tells in in the uh, conversation either run into the fire or run away from the fire and he ran into the fire so to speak of the trauma of having his son murdered and on the other side of that has came some great benefit uh, for us in this industry to learn from and so William's death has not completely gone um you know, without some good coming out of it. It's a fantastic story to let him tell it. Uh, it will touch your heart. And so I will I will let him do that. Before we get started, I want to remind you that we're coming up to the end of the year. As you hear this, we've only got a couple of weeks left of 2019. That is amazing. And our Medical Legal Death Investigation Online Academy starts on January 18th. And so if you want to be a part of that, it is kind of is new and restructured. Uh, if you've taken it in the past and you're listening, thinking, oh, I've missed out on something. No, you really haven't missed out on anything. Uh, we're just doing some restructuring. We're doing some things a little bit different, uh, giving uh, a few more downloads, a few more things. It's going to be a different platform and a different experience, but the content is the same. By and large, the content is the same. You've not missed out. You've taken it in the past, but you know we've had that out there for a couple of years. And like anything, we've got to improve. We've got to grow. We've got to improve some of the videos. Uh, some things have changed. We've got to update. And so, again, this is a very new experience. So you want to do a $300 a month plan? Sign up for it. Have, have it be a Christmas present or whatever you need. If you want to wait till after the first year to the new budget, that's okay too. January 18th, you'll want to get involved in this because it's going to be a really, really good program and we hear all the time how students are telling us this program has helped them get a job now i am not saying that i guarantee you a job i am saying that many many students have told us without this course they've had a lot of doors closed in their face and after this course and the optional certification exam they've had a lot of doors opened for them that's from them not from me so I, many, many students have told us this. So I'm telling you, if you want to further your career, if you want to get better education, if you're already in the field, 
or if you want to get started in the field and you're not working there yet, uh, we can help you do all of that. And then, of course, again, check our online schedule because we've got lots of classroom courses coming up in 2020 all over the country uh, that we can be in. We're going to be in South uh, Southern California. I'm going to be in Texarkana. I'm going to be in Montana. I'm going to be in Maine, everywhere. So check those. And if we, if you want me to come to your conference or if you just want to host a training in your area, I can, your, your people can be trained for free. I can come. We can open it up to, uh, to other agencies uh, within a hundred, couple hundred mile area of you. And we can fill a class and then your agency uh, receives free training. I think it's a fantastic way to get training for your agency and you don't have to travel. You don't have to pay any of the expenses. All you have to do is provide uh, some audio video, a classroom, and maybe a pot of coffee. It's pretty, pretty cheap for three days worth of training. So Anyway, without any further delay, let's get into this conversation uh, with Bill Jenkins. And on the other side of it, I'll come back, give you some thoughts, and we'll kind of take it from there as to where we're going to go with this information he gives us on proper notification and how a real victim dealt at the time with the notifications that was given. Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. All right, I'm back with you. And as I pre-introduced on the show with me today is Bill Jenkins. And and Bill, I've, I've introduced you a little bit, but welcome to the show, uh, the Corner Talk podcast. It's, I'm happy to be here. You know, I've I've mentioned some of what's in your bio, uh, I you know, a little bit. Uh, and I want to talk about going forward about victims and 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 the la- the first days after a tragedy and things sure. like that. But uh, and that's what we're here to talk about. And I want coroners and medical examiner investigators to understand what victims and victim families go through. And that's the whole point about this. But in I kind of alluded to some things in pre-open, but I didn't really say a lot. So so if you could take us back to 1997 when your life changed and what started you on this journey, give us a little idea of what happened there and the gut punch that you got that started this journey. Sure. Um, uh, unlike, and I want to preface this by saying, unlike a lot of victims, I, uh, I, I feel like I've been able to um, process this and, uh, and deal with much of this I don't know, maybe I just did a little bit more resiliently or I did it uh, a little bit more objectively. But uh, being a, a college professor, uh, the first thing that I that I thought as I was going through this is what can I learn from this? And is there a way that I can use this information to help other people? And uh, so I was paying attention in ways that a lot of other people don't pay attention uh, when I was going through this, which just sounds kind of weird, but it worked for me, and um, and it has been a great benefit to other people, of course. Now, but um, William was on his second day at work at a fast food restaurant in Richmond, Virginia, on August twelfth of nineteen ninety seven, and uh, I dropped him off in the morning at a library so that he could get some uh, summer school studying uh, finished up, uh, and. Uh, and that was the last time I saw him. He he walked away from my car, and um, I, I uh, the windows were down, and I sort of yelled out the window, "I love you, William." And he turned around, walked back, stuck his head in the window on the passenger side, and said, "I love you too, Dad." And I turned around, I walked into the library, and I never saw him again alive. Um, so, uh, first of all, one of the most uh, important things that I'm grateful for is that we parted that way. Um, there are many families that uh, have much less um, 
loving and uh, um, uh, and kind moments before their their child or their loved one uh, uh, is uh, killed, uh, whether by accident or or intent. Uh, but uh, uh, later that day, William went to uh, to work. Like I said, he was on his second day. He had just been hired. And he was working at a fast food restaurant. It was, for those that are familiar with them, kind of like the, uh, these aren't seen very much anymore, but like Sonic and Checkers, those were kind of the operations that it was. It wasn't one of those. It was a local chain, but they basically just built a, you know, just a big cracker box on a concrete slab and they serve, people were served through the front window uh, in walk-up service only. There's no indoor seating, the kitchen's in the back. Um, and so uh, around 10 o'clock that night, uh, William was just about ready to go home and the manager, who was a 25-year-old woman, was inside and uh, another young man was about 16, had just left, and he had walked around to the other side of the building. And, you know, William's the kind of kid that says, stand there and say, and wait for the, for the manager to go home and make sure she was okay. I mean, that was the whole, the whole point of this. And he, um, so he stuck around for a couple minutes, and uh, the manager finally said, okay, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to lock up the safe, and I'm going to turn off the lights, and uh, we can go. And uh, go on outside and uh, and wait for me, and I'll be there in a minute. And uh, so William went out the back door, and when he walked out of the back door, there was a man standing right beside the door off to the side, lying in wait for basically the next person to come out. He grabbed William, put the gun up to his neck, and uh, told him to turn around and open the door. Um, and William did exactly what he was supposed to do. I mean, he, he didn't escalate the situation, didn't make it any worse. He um, knocked on the door. Uh, the manager looked through the peephole in the, the security viewer, and she said, "What was going on? What's going on out there?" And because uh, she could see that William, that there was somebody with him, and uh, William said, "Winona, you have to open the door," uh, which she did. Uh, she unlocked the door and opened it from the inside. And as soon as that happened, uh, for whatever reason, we still don't know why, um, the man pulled the trigger and shot William. The, bullet went through his uh, carotid artery and his jugular vein. So he was basically dead before he hit the floor. Um, and, you know, we have, we know that. <laughs> um, and then the man uh, stepped over William's body and pointed the gun at the manager and said, open the safe or you're next. Uh, she went and uh, opened the safe. It took her five tries to do so, because as we all know, when you're get terrorized like that and traumatized that way all of your fine motor skills just go out the window um she fully expected to die as well um she finally got the safe open uh the man ordered her to lay on the floor face down and not move which she did um and uh, he grabbed 1700 dollars out of the safe uh suddenly realized he had too much stuff in his hands to, to carry it all uh he grabbed her purse stuffed the gun and the money in her purse uh which is kind of a, like a big bag type of purse um ran out the back door ran down the back uh behind the building where there was a 17 year old girl and an 18 year old girl waiting for him with a car and he jumped in the car and they drove away um, at that point, uh, through some very good police work, which I'm not even going to get into, but uh, a couple people were in the right place at the right time, got the dispatch call. They were very close to the restaurant. They were apprehended within five minutes. Of course, the evidence in the vehicle was pretty, pretty certain. Um, and uh, at that point, later on in the evening, I got a phone call around 2 a.m. 
from a police officer who was at William's house. William lived with his mom on the other side of town from me. And um, the police officer said, uh, Mr. Jenkins, can you come over to William's house? I have some things I need to talk to you about. Because uh, he didn't want to give me a death notification over the phone. And mm-hmm. good for him. That was uh, exactly the right call. Uh, and so I got dressed and um, uh, drove over to William's house. And uh, when I walked in, there was a fine young man, police officer, standing there and, and his uniform. And um, there was a, I looked to my left, and William's mom was sitting on the sofa crying. And there was a, uh, a woman with her that uh, I later found out was from the mental health program. And uh, I, I literally looked at the officer and I said, uh, he introduced himself and I looked at him and I said, is this something I need to sit down for? <laughs> and he said, yes, sir, I'm afraid it is. And I sat down and he proceeded to give me the death notification that William had been killed at 1030 that night. The reason it took so long to notify me was, first of all, they didn't know where I lived. Uh, I had been to William's house plenty of times, but I just hadn't bothered to, you know, give them the address to where I lived, which was kind of silly, but whatever. They, they knew how to get in touch with me on the phone. Um, and uh, the other problem was that uh, because Williams was dead at the scene, they couldn't get into the building to actually uh, examine the, the uh, personnel records. Everybody knew who he was, but they didn't know where his address was. And uh, until the investigators came uh, and uh, cleared the crime scene, they couldn't really go in and pull the personnel records. William like a like a big goof wasn't carrying any id on him that night uh so it took a while to get in touch with me but you know from that point forward uh our lives turned upside down uh you know we did the thing that parents just do not want to do which is bury a child uh we joined the club nobody wanted to join um and uh got pulled into the criminal justice system uh and um it was uh it was pretty touch and go there for a while it was very very difficult for us as a family to adjust to this uh, it was complicated by the fact that we that William's mom and I had been divorced for a number of years and I had remarried that was a complication and uh we were um trying to deal with uh, the needs of William's younger brother and sister uh Paul was 3 years younger than William and Mary was 6 years younger at that time uh, and uh, so we had to help deal with their needs. We had to deal with the needs of his family or uh, uh, the rest, rest of the family members, the extended family. And William was quite beloved, and 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 we were. Yeah, there were a lot of people that liked us too, uh, but uh, we uh, we tried to really pay a lot of attention to the children uh, that were present at the funeral and meet their needs. Um, we, we tried to minimize the traumatic impact, but uh, are going to experience the uh, the trauma of being the secondary victims, the surviving victims, the the people that are left behind, and quite frankly, the people that are left to pick up the pieces and do some of the really tough things that uh, that have to be done. Right. I mean, I I could not imagine getting the phone calls that that you say you're getting. I um. You know, I've given a lot of notifications over the years as part of my job, and I've told a lot of parents that their children are dead. Um, <laughs> but I could not imagine being the parent sitting on the couch listening to that. That that must that must have been a horrible. Uh, I can't even imagine. And and you telling it, you've been so many years, you've told it a thousand times, but you can still hear in your voice when you start reliving that night. This is not something. Okay, you learned to process it. You've done a lot of good because of William's yep. death. 
uh, but it's still fresh today, and I can hear it in your voice. There was yes, and thank you for saying that. Uh, it's very true. There was uh, there was a quote that I read, and it was I, I can't remember who said it, but it's in one. And um, the the quote goes something like, "Someone said to me, it must seem like yesterday." Just like today. Uh, I'm in the middle right now, and this is an important Once Thanksgiving hits, from Thanksgiving all the way up through New Year's, is pretty much the worst time of year for victims' families. Obviously, there are the reminders from uh, the fact that uh, they're not there at Thanksgiving, they're not there at Christmas, there's an empty stocking by the chimney, they're not there for Hanukkah or, or the other uh, holidays that just fill this whole period of. of coincidentally the darkest time of the year <laughs> um and there are uh, other problems as well and that is that uh, there are a lot of deaths associated especially road and drunk driving deaths associated with the uh, the new year um and so there are uh, and, and death never takes a holiday just because it's you know, a, a nice day for everybody else to have off. Uh, the um, From Thanksgiving through the beginning of the new year, um, uh, pretty well just sucks. Yeah. And, and my family doesn't really, you know, my extended family uh, doesn't really know how the depth of the personal impact. Um, of course, all of us that are closest to the loss are going to feel the impact more than the people that are further out and the and the ripples travel further and they affect people but um it's those it's those parents that would be with their children or with their loved ones their spouses who are no longer with them um this is a tough time of year yeah. and uh it's i don't think most people realize that well if you've never experienced it there's no way somebody realizes it and that's one thing uh, you know what i teach a lot is you know don't say i know how you feel cuz no you don't you know, and even exactly. I mean, it'd yeah. be like me saying to a pregnant woman, "Gosh, I know how you feel." Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like yeah, that's even, a good way to get your head ripped off. <laughs> and even if you've lost a child, you still can't know how that person feels because things are kind of different. You know, things like right. Uh, well, and let me just say very briefly: uh, when it comes time to to say something to that family, because of course everybody wants to be kind and and fill the air up with noise um but oftentimes people resort to platitudes they they resort to things that they've been taught to say and most of the time all there needs to be is a recognition that it happened um and an assurance that that we're not alone so when you're talking to someone that has had a had a loss uh um i even tell people uh, you know this whole thing about uh you know, saying I'm sorry for your loss, uh, as as much as it uh, it sounds like it does the job, it begins to sound like a platitude after 50 people have said it yeah. to you. So yeah. if you can come up with something a little bit more unique and say something like, I'm so sorry about what happened to William. I know your family must be going through something very difficult right now. Um, just make it personal. Use their name. Um, be gentle. Be kind. Uh, and don't resort to platitudes that may sound really great when you look at them and and think that hey this helps answer the way the the world works. Um, uh, it generally doesn't for those of us that are that are wrestling with death and and uh, wrestling with the the things that have happened to us that we did not ask. For. Right. No. Absolutely. 
And before we get into the good that has come from this, if if I mean, there has been some good come from it, but certainly not anything that would you know rather have your son. I know, but but let's go back just a little bit and talk as much as you want to. I I don't want to sure. uh, I don't want to wade into to, to bad sores. But you mentioned you know you and your wife divorced. You were remarried at the time, and yeah. and and when you got to that point, you stumbled just a little in your in your speech because and like you said that was a tough time. So. Lots of families are in the same situation, you know, divorce, separation, things like that. Absolutely. What about that was the was the biggest issue, uh, you and your wife having to mourn and heal together? I'm sorry, your ex-wife, the new wife, was there... I shouldn't say this. Was there jealousy? What was you was was there something? How does that dynamic trouble, work? Let me go ahead and take over. <laughs> <laughs> How does that dynamic work? Because it it's got to be horrible. Right, uh, you're about ready to paint yourself into a corner <laughs> exactly. that you didn't know what to do with. <laughs> Let me. Um, so, first of all, our families um, got along very well. Good. Uh, that's the first thing. Um, everybody had realized. Yeah, there, there was. Uh, everybody realized that this was just, you know, part of life. This is reality. Everybody's accepting it, and um, you know, we're moving on. Um, and we had been divorced for a years at that point, And I had been married for two years at that point. So um, there was no problem with kids. Everybody was, you know, pretty much trying to do this the best way humans could do it. Uh, we really were intent on doing that, keeping the emotional content uh, at, at bay and the conflict low, um, which, of course, is really a good thing for the kids because kids don't do well when they see conflict. Um, between parents. So, so that's the first thing. But what ultimately happened was, first of all, I did begin to reconnect uh, and help my ex-wife uh, try to begin to deal with this. And of course, we had more in common at that point than I had with with uh, wife number two. Um, and so that was a bit of a problem um, that I don't think that it led to a lot of jealousy. It, it was just simply, okay, this is, you know, not the way we wanted it to happen. But I think the biggest problem was with the mindset of my, my ex-wife, William's mother. Let me, let me refer to them as my William's, William's mother and my wife. Let's, let's maybe distinguish them that way. And that way nobody will get upset <laughs> and I won't stay and I won't be confused. Um, William's mom and I, we were mourning the loss of 16 years of a past history with my son. Um, my wife at the time lost the future. She really loved William, thought he was just a great kid, which of course he was. Um, they did a lot together. They had a lot in common. They were becoming very good friends. Um, and she did not have any other children in her life. And she was looking at William as this really great young man. She was going to get a chance to spend a lot of the future with. And that just came crashing down. So that was a real blow for her. Something else happened, and I say this in all sincerity, this was my fault, but I don't know what I could have done differently. Um, when William was killed, I decided that, uh, as you said, um, I, a lot of good things, I wanted good things to happen because of this. I didn't want bad things to happen from it. I didn't want any more tragedies. Of course, they're still going to happen, but to the extent that I could control the things in my life, 
I was going to make good things happen from this tragedy. And I did. Um, we, we did a lot of things right. We, we uh, worked on some uh, scholarship programming, things like that. But I started, a- after we got through the trials, I, um, uh, I sat down, I looked at all this material that I had collected over the time, books and articles and internet articles and all sorts of stuff. And I said, you know, I really am getting to a place where I don't need these anymore. I've been through them once and I don't need them again. Um, I could put them in a drawer or in a bookcase or in a box and forget about them, or I could take this and, and write the book that I couldn't find, which was a book written by a victim, by a surviving family member about what do you do after tragedy. I found a lot of them written by, uh, medical health professionals, um, and, uh, psychiatrists and Janice Harris Lord's book, No Time for Goodbyes, a superb book, but it was for drunk driving crashes. And so I, I wanted to try to put something together and I started doing that and staying up to about two o'clock every morning working on the book. And of course, that sacrificed, uh, in many ways the relationship. I call that uh, now that I look back on it, now I do workshops on relationships and loss and traumatic loss for groups like Parents of Murdered Children and other groups. I, I call that running into the fire. There are family members who will want to run into fires. They will want to start a violence prevention group. They will want to start a local support group for family members. They, they're going to do that kind of stuff. They're going to go to the conventions, the Parents of Murdered Children, the Bereaved Families USA, Compassionate Friends. They're going to go to these workshops and conventions and and interact and keep this as a major active part of their life. And they're the new ones that want to run away from the fire. And both responses are perfectly legitimate. Mm-hmm. The ones that want to run away from the fire just say, you know, can we just put this foot behind us? Can we, can we just not talk about this tonight? Can we, can we, you know, I don't mind if you want a picture or two around, but let's not make the be- the bedroom into a shrine. Okay. You know, and they'll maybe travel more, maybe move out of the out of the uh, re, uh, uh, locality and so you've got people that are going to run into the fire and run out of the fire i ran into the fire and my wife at the time ran out, away from the fire and i tr- we tried to work that out we tried to legitimately meet each other's needs but ultimately what i was doing was taking um my life away from her too we reached a point where that was no longer sustainable. But here's the thing. For families that where both spouses run into the fire, I've met so many at the conferences and, and doing the activist work that I do. Um, they usually stay together and oftentimes get, get much stronger. And the ones that both decide to run away from the fire, they do quite well as well. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's not true that if your child is is killed, that your marriage is doomed. What dooms the marriage is how do the people respond in the aftermath? Are they both going to incorporate it into their lives? Or are they both going to distance themselves from it? That really is the the predictor for that. Yeah, yeah. And I, over the years, I've seen a lot of families broke up, marriages broke up because of child has died. Whether it be a traumatic incident or whether it be, you know, an infant death or something like that. Again, just for the same reason, some people run into it and some people run out from it, away from it. And when it's not, when you're not on the same team, obviously somebody's going to feel like I've been lost by the wayside. And, you know, I lost William and now I've lost Bill. 
and now I'm by myself or whatever your you know your wife thought or whatever. And and I could yeah. I could see that being an issue. I I want to back up just for a second on the sure night that that you were notified. And again, we're talking to coroners and police officers here. Uh, mm-hmm. You have a police officer in 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 your in your Williams mom's house, and you said he did a good job. But mm-hmm. on that notification, at that time, again, you said he did right by not doing it on the phone. That mm-hmm. time of notification, families remember that forever, good yep. and bad. You said he did good. What about mm-hmm. that night? Do you feel that he did right? And you know, mm-hmm. again, you're you're talking to thousands of coroners and, and police officers that's going to do this very thing. So, what did he right. do right that that they need to do? Well, first of all, he was kind. Um, this officer was um, not officious, but he was official. People can understand the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, he did not try to protect his own emotional state by becoming, you know, putting that facade up and uh, and becoming very officious about the whole thing, and then saying um, he gave us his time. Uh, he came in and gave us all the time we needed to ask questions to process as much as we could while he was there and while the mental health professional was there. It wasn't exactly what you would call a crisis response team, but they were doing the best they can. And they had one officer and one person from, from mental health. And that, that, that worked okay. I yeah. mean, um, oftentimes you also have, um, uh, sometimes you'll have victim advocates come in as well. Uh, um, the crisis response team model was very healthy one and very, uh, very useful. Um, and no matter what, death notification should never be given by a solo officer. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, and, and if for no other reason than that officer needs, uh, and the, that officer is going to need to process with someone on the way back to the station. Yeah. Um, and uh, you need to consider the mental health uh, impact of uh, voluntarily walking into a situation and inevitably traumatizing a family member that that hurts officers as well. And, uh, and, taking care of them is critical, right, right. Uh, even if they don't think they need it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, he gave of his time. Uh, he was very kind. He had even, in the, in the absence of materials to leave behind with the family uh, that had been provided by the department, the victim advocate program or whatever uh, would have been providing that, he had come up with some things of his own that he left behind when he did these. And it was just... I mean, in the middle of all this, for me, that's like, wow, that's that's really amazing uh, that he actually realized that there was a need for materials to be left behind. And he had a little inspirational card or something that he, that he had just Xeroxed and and uh, and gave us, uh, you know, it wasn't official, but, you know, it was a touch. It was a personalized touch that was very helpful. Um he assured us that um, he could, while he could not answer a lot of our questions at that moment, that the investigators would be by, um, and he gave us a time frame, you know, within the next day or so, uh, to come in and sit down, and he and that they will answer um, as many questions as we had that that they could at the time answer after the investigation had uh, at least reached a preliminary stage. Um, he was um, he was supportive uh, in terms of making some suggestions about making some phone calls and uh, you know ask if we wanted uh, I believe he he asked if and this is also why it's a good idea to have more than one person to do that uh, one person can stay with the family while the other runs to the kitchen fills up some glasses or or whatever and uh, but ultimately 
uh, no matter how much time he he wanted to give us and 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 how much he cared uh he did have to go back to um back to work um i looked at my ex-wife william's mom and i looked at her and i said now what do we do <laughs> um because we really kind of were left drifting at that point and um and of course one of the reasons that i wrote my book afterwards what to do when the police leave um one of the reasons i wrote it is for officers like that and uh uh, so that they would have something that they could say, here's something that might help. I know you might not want to, might not be in a condition to read it right now, but, but when family starts to gather and when people start coming in, maybe, maybe have somebody go through it and talk you through some of the high points and things, uh, that, uh, that will help you with some of the, some of the things that you're going to just have to wind up doing the next couple of days. Um, and in fact, the, the book has become a very useful, um, uh, death notification tool. For the, exactly that reason, right? And so, because of uh, because of the book, and and of course, mm-hmm. again, you running into the fire, um, you have been on a lot of state boards, a lot of corporate boards, all around victim advocacy type things, right? Mm-hmm. You've you've actually have you influenced some laws and influenced some policies throughout the time because of this. This is true. Um, my wife and I are working on this. <laughs> Wife number three. <laughs> she is also a uh, murder victim's family member. Her uh, sister and brother-in-law and their unborn child were shot and killed in um, uh, in the Winnetka area north of Chicago. Uh, some of your listeners may, may even be familiar with that. It was a very famous incident where a 16-year-old high school student uh, perpetrated a, a home invasion and laid in wait and when the three, when the two of them got home, he proceeded to uh, shoot all three and shoot them and and kill them. Uh, he's serving life without parole sentences for those three for those three murders. Um, but um, my wife Jennifer Bishop Jenkins and I are uh, are active in uh, working on enforceable victims' rights and bringing um, enforceable victims' rights into each state uh, and into the courtroom. Um, so that yes, even though uh, yes, when we are given, when we when we have victims' rights enumerated in the state constitutions and the and in statute, that we will actually be able to enforce them, <laughs> and uh, the right to be present in the courtroom, the right to give a, a victim impact statement, the right to uh, uh, trial free from unreasonable delay, the right to be protected from intimidation in the courtroom and elsewhere. Um, all of these things, um, you know, for years since the 70s, uh, have been on the books. But oftentimes we're denied victims just simply because people didn't want to just put the time and the effort into into doing it. Uh, and that's being charitable. There were some that actually didn't want people to have their rights executed simply because it would mean it would be diff- more difficult for the defendant to to um, uh, possibly be released or whatever. But these are these are other issues that we're working on. We're also working on gun violence prevention uh, reforms. We work on. Um, Working on uh, state policy with regards to victims and their and their resources, um, it, it's notable uh, that um, here in the Chicago area where where we live now, um, there are 60 victim advocates working with the uh, Cook County Victim Advocacy Program uh, at last count, um, and that may sound like a lot to to some people. But when you consider the caseload of the court system and that it takes two years for a trial to generally uh, for a case to generally get to court, even if it does get there uh, with all the plea bargaining that can go on. And the fact that there are 900 probation officers on the other side 
you begin to see that that's a woefully inadequate number to take care of the caseload for the number of victims. Um, so we're working very hard to educate uh, victim advocates, to uh, train them. Uh, I do workshops at the National Organization of Victim Assistance Conference every year. Um, and we work very hard to make sure that the people that are doing these jobs and they're working with the victims' families know what they're getting into and know how to help us understand how trauma impacts our minds and our bodies uh, and are able to do the best job they possibly can and have the, the best tools with which and uh, with which to work and enough people to do the job. Right, right. How long after William's death did the last person get convicted in that case? Well, in our case, in Richmond, Virginia, things moved a little faster. Our trials were over uh, in the courtroom and over and done within about six months. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, we um, They moved pretty quickly. Um, this was originally considered a capital case. Um, I stood in the Commonwealth Attorney's Office when he told me that, and I specifically requested that it not involve an execution, that the uh, we did not want to expose our family to that, uh, that I did not want my family to be re-traumatized by having to sit and watch somebody die. Um and and I've never regretted that decision because uh, ever since I've talked to a lot of families that have gone through the capital punishment process. And I realize now how much additional misery and trauma I spared my, my family and myself from um, having seen what this does to to other victims. Uh, uh, not to make this about capital punishment, but one of the things that happens is when there is a complication in a case, whether it's an appeal, whether it's a death penalty case, uh, whether it's whether it's anything that ends in something other than some good, solid finality. And I'm not going to use the word closure, but finality, uh, legal finality. Um, it's a complication in the in the lives of the family members. Uh, and that li- that complication can uh, cause a delay in their ability to grieve. Uh, it can cause uh, serious problems with their ability to feel safe in their home and in their community. Um, it can cause um, uh, serious psychological problems and uh, and their ability to adjust to the life that they have to live now. Um, so I'm glad I was able to avoid that. Uh, so. We got through all of this in about six months, uh, and that's when I started writing the book, uh, immediately after that. Yeah, so the man received life in prison without parole okay. you know, on, since it was a capital case. Um, the 18-year-old girl uh, and the 17-year-old girl were sentenced to uh, 14 years and 18 years in prison um, for their part in the trial as in their case as accomplices. Um, they actually received extremely large uh, terms of years, like 50 and 60 years uh, in prison. But being the guy I am, I, in my victim impact statement, I, I specifically requested that the judge, first of all, consider this public safety. Um, but if there was a way to give them a second chance to redeem this and to and to come back and, and better their own lives, um, that I would be all for that. Uh, and so he basically suspended the sentences. They're out of jail now. So if they screw up, they're going back in. Right. But um, the 17 year old actually um, is going to, I think she's going to be fine. She got to prison. She figured it out. She understood that she was in big trouble and she made an attempt to 
get her GED. She got her AA degree. She got a cosmetology degree. She did all those things that, that we would hope people would do to help reduce their, their, um, uh, opportunities for recidivism and, uh, and going back in. So, um, I'm looking, you know, I didn't want another life to be lost just because right. my son was killed. But now those two, they obviously knew that the, the man was going to go rob the restaurant, but they had yes. no indication or even, even thought whatsoever that he was going to kill anybody. No, of course not. They knew he had a gun. Right. Um, uh, but they stayed down with the car while he went up to the restaurant. Uh, they had gone up and sort of cased the place, looked in the windows just to check, see who was inside, how many people were there came back and gave him that information. So they were full-fledged accomplices, yeah. but they, um, uh, but those two girls were, were confused little kids yeah. and uh, had been talked into doing something by somebody that they should not have agreed to do. And um, they wound up in big trouble for it. Well, and again, they were nearly your son's age. They were just kids. They were. I mean, they were. they're responsible. I'm not taking that away. But again, like you said, nope. they were kids. Uh, you know, an older man talked them into something they shouldn't have done. And they had, if they had thought for one second that this man was going to kill your son, they probably would have made a different decision. Robbery is one thing. Murder is another. But did, did, exactly. he, did he give any indication at trial why he pulled the trigger when it wasn't necessary? No, he, um, he just was very sullen and, and very withdrawn. Uh, we see this a lot. I mean, we do have an adversarial criminal justice system. And, you know, as I've been going through this process, I, I understand that 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 can create a real problem. I mean, um, if, if you are going to be filing an appeal, you don't want to stand up and apologize to the family that you killed their <laughs> killed right. their family member in court. Right. Um, so this, you know, restorative justice is something that I'm I'm looking at as as a good low level uh alternative for for certain crimes i think uh um and, you know, it's it's really a good uh um, option but uh you know he he just in fact he he filed an alfred plea which basically says uh i'm not going to say that i did it but you've got enough evidence to prove that i did so whatever <laughs> yeah um but uh he did take the the um the plea bargain when they when they said look the the um the dad doesn't want to kill you. Um, so, uh, you know, if you plead guilty, we'll go ahead and run you, you know, into life, life without parole. How old was he? He was 25, 25. Yeah. I think you might've mentioned that, but okay. 25. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's yeah. just terrible. So, and there are more details about all of this. If people are interested on our website, yeah. uh, willsworld.com. Um, people can go and they can read about the, the trial. They can read about the experience and how we responded and, see a little bit more about William and there's a little bit of a memorial website there with some of his drawings and, uh, and, uh, teenage writings and things like that on it as well. Right. So it was at, you know, after six months, the trials were over and all that. That's when, that's when you kind of ran into the fire even more. Is that yeah. when you think closure, if that's even the right word started? I mean, is that, is that when, is that when you started to make a turn of, I've got to do something with this pent up energy and I've got to do something that comes good out of this. Is that when that started or was it just good in this? Book well, I wanted to do, I wanted that kind of, um, I, I was in that mindset from the very outset, okay. but, uh, once the trials were over, then that's where the opportunity arose. Yeah. Uh, I also had learned an awful lot at that point and I could actually speak with authority about what it was like to go through a trial. Cause I actually been through one. 
And I would also at that time going through some of the uh, uh, trial experiences with some of the friends that we had made in the homicide support group that the the local victim victim assistance program was running at at the time. Right. Uh, so I had learned an awful lot. I mean, I learned it the hard way, but I paid attention. I took some notes and um, had some other good friends to help me at that point. Um, so it was a um, uh, it was the opportunity plus the the uh, cred- credential, I think, uh, that enabled me to um, to start writing. And, you know, maybe I also just needed something to do. Yeah. But what I found was that every night I sat down to work on this, I was reprocessing the experience, the trauma. Um, this became a very therapeutic thing for me. And, and I always recommend to people to, to try journaling afterwards as well, even if they don't intend to publish it. Because you, when you reprocess these, uh, these memories, uh, you're able to pull them out. And even as ugly and as horrible as they are, you're able to stare them in the face and then say you know what i'm living with you 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 can't you can't hurt me anymore i you know we're going to walk side by side and uh and you can't hurt me anymore and and you become accustomed to their company and their companionship um which of course will change over the years as well but i um i think that's one of the reasons why i came through it as quickly as i did a lot of people are afraid to to approach those memories and to um to to deal with them because the memories are painful yeah and no humans don't like pain right uh and um that's why we got an opioid epidemic i mean seriously there's people don't like pain and so uh they will try to avoid them by suppressing them and what they don't realize is the neurology uh researchers have found that the actual act of trying to suppress a memory actually strengthens it Interesting. Because you are focusing on it. Well, I understand uh, that a, a little bit uh, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of things out there, like when it comes to fear, and, and I know we're rabbit trailing, but like you kind of said, when you face that mm-hmm. fear or you face that anger or you face that, all the power kind of goes out of it. And, may, and maybe not completely, yeah. and there are probably some things just bigger and hairier than others. But when you work so hard on trying to uh, keep it at bay and prevent it, but actually give it a more power. And I can see that that can, can be very true. But again, I've talked to parents uh, for months and even years after an mm-hmm. event with their child, and they've never came to terms with it. And yeah. they still are just as raw and bitter yeah. and whatever the, it is, because mm-hmm. they've never embraced it. And I don't mean embrace it as in joyful, but embrace it it's part of you it's part of my life now how am i going to deal with this run in run out but something do something it's the nothing i think that actually controls people yeah if you're going to take a a, an event in your life and turn it into a part of your autobiography you have to process it And, and i often tell people look don't try to do this yourself right we have trauma trained therapists out there we have people out there that can help you uh, and to turn this memory into uh, part of your autobiography. And at that point, then, you know, it's part of the book and it's back there on some page. It's back a thousand pages from where you are right now. And you mm-hmm. just don't go back and look at that much anymore. Right, right. Um, right. And that's kind of the way it is with me. Uh, a lot of people keep writing that incident on every single page as they live forward every oh, day. Yeah. yeah, they never turn it. Yeah. William's mom, is she mm-hmm. okay? Is she doing well? 
She's doing quite well. Um, once, uh, once William was killed, she was a registered nurse at the okay. time. She went and uh, determined that um, she really wanted to work with families, uh, and she works with some family practice. She uh, was a certified nurse midwife, um, so she's helping to, to uh, birth babies. And that woman, uh, she's an incredible inspiration. I'm very, very proud of her. I truly am. She, um, When she was 50, she decided she'd had enough of the whole nursing thing, and she just really wasn't able to do some of the things she wanted. So she applied to med school. Nice. <laughs> and, and now she has a practice in West Virginia and it's a family practice and she's, she's doing good work helping people that need her. Again, took that energy and focused it on helping people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So let's, uh, we got just a few minutes left here, but let's talk sure. just for a second here again about uh, what to do when police leave a guide to the first days of a traumatic loss. Now that's the book that you wrote. We have hit on it, right. but but tell us, you know, there's some checklists in there. There's some points. I've kind of looked through the book some on on the digital that you sent me. Mm-hmm. What does that book offer for coroners and, and medical examiners, police officers? What does that book offer them as far as an insight and highlighting into how they deal, how families should deal or what families will be looking for? Well, here's the thing that I did. Um, when I sat down and wrote this book, I made a commitment to myself to be absolutely perfectly honest, regardless of how it may affect me. I knew I could deal with it and get past it. Um, and so what I did was I wrote as honestly as I could because the, the, the family members who were going to be reading this book needed an honest and, and completely objective appraisal of what was going to be happening to them. And so I use the word I, I use the word we, I, 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 I speak in the first person throughout the book, which is one of the reasons why I didn't like any of the other books that I was reading because they were written by third parties. Um, and I, I tried to bring them into my own experience. Um, I don't put anything in stone. I don't say, you're going to have this happen to you. It's like, this may be part of your life now. This may be something that you will notice about how you respond in certain situations. And so uh, I find that a lot of my uh, victim advocates, police officers uh, that buy the book um, will come back and they'll say, oh my gosh, I learned so much because you were talking to the victims, but it enabled me to see what was going on with them as well. Um, so it's a great training aid, uh, for your folks, uh, who may be interested in, in, uh, working with these families in, in more depth. Um, it's a great, uh, like I said before, it's a great tool for, uh, leaving behind if uh, we have a bulk order program so that, uh, since I self-publish, I can do whatever I want with it. And right. we have a very affordable bulk order program. Uh, a lot of, a lot of programs will buy 10 copies, you know, 10, a hundred bucks will get you 10 copies of my book. Um. And uh, so I'll, uh, you know, they'll ha- they'll have some on hand to give to the families. Um, they'll put them in their libraries, uh, you know, have them as a resource available. Uh, every couple of months, I get calls from from certain parts of the country, which will remain nameless, and they'll say, "Yeah, it's time for us to buy another fifty books," mm-hmm. uh, and I send them a box of books. You know, um, so uh, I also do uh, workshops and training, and as long as people can get me there and get me home and. And let me sell my books when I get there. You know, if there's an honorarium involved, fine. But, you know, I'm really in this to help other people. I'm not in this to, to make a lot of money because I wouldn't be able to anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, 
Uh, but I do trainings on doing victim-sensitive death notifications. I do trainings on um, on trauma, the neurobiology of trauma, vicarious trauma. I do workshops on resilience and uh, and um, dealing with um, the the demands of doing this kind of work uh, on a day-to-day basis. Um, uh, self-care for yeah. the for the caregivers and the and the um, providers. So nice, nice. Uh, I stay busy, yeah. busy enough. Yeah, that's good. So, and, are you retired uh, so, from uh, as a professor? Are you a retired professor? Are you still teaching, or? Oh God, no! I'm not ever going to retire. Oh yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so you're doing both, yeah. I'm I'm just doing both. Uh, my teaching schedule actually usually works out where um, I try to schedule myself so that I in my class schedule so that I have like Wednesdays as free days. Yeah. So if I need to leave on a Tuesday night, do a workshop in D- Jacksonville on Wednesday and fly back Wednesday night and be in class on Thursday, I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and good. of course, weekends are always open most of the time. Um, and uh, then of course, summers are, you know, by the time I hit final exams in May, all the way until uh, school starts at the end of August, I've, I'm pretty wide open and uh, except for vacation time. Yeah. So what are you a professor of? What, what do you teach? Well, believe it or not, I teach in the theater department at Dominican University. I oh, do nice. technical theater. Okay. I do the stuff that people get paid for really well, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, nice. uh, stuff that everybody needs. But, uh, you know, scenery design, lighting design, painting, uh, all of that. So I, I'm a trained artist. Um, but, uh, you know, like I like to tell my friends in the um, outside the theater world, you know, we the theater has been studying psychology for the past three thousand years, so yeah. nobody can beat us when it comes to that. So, and I was also a biology major in college, so I've got a very eclectic background. Yeah. Um, and right now, I'm uh, I'm into about five years of intense um, personal study of uh, neurobiology and neuroscience, oh. and uh, trying to look into the trauma, the neurobiology behind trauma, how it affects us, and what we can do about it to maintain the healthiest state that we can be in to give us our, ourselves the optimal level of of healing uh, opportunities, so that when we do receive therapy, it's as effective as it can possibly be. Nice. And of course, that also includes what you eat and how you breathe and how you walk and how you um, how you live each day. So yeah. it's uh, it's been an interesting journey, and I'm working on another book at some point. Uh, but I hope my grandchildren live to see it. You yeah, know, that's one yeah. of those things. Yeah, well, that that's very nice. So is you, is that book available on Amazon? Uh, what to do when the police leave is available on okay. Amazon. Okay. And if you go directly to our website, and if somebody wanted to buy multiple copies, you can get them directly from us instead of going to Barnes and Noble yeah. or someplace. And that would be willsworld.com. Willsworld.com. Okay. We'll also, yeah, I've I've notes. also pointed WBJ Press at a uh, WBJPress.com. Okay. Also, we'll get you there as well. That's our W. Publishing to what is again? WBJPress. Um, basically, Williams yeah. Williams initials. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, that's my self publishing company. Yeah. yeah. And I, I will put links in the show notes, so if anybody's oh, listening, they can swipe up on their on their phone or go to the computer or whatever, and at least they can get there. And if they don't remember what we said, they can find it in the show notes. So, well, Bill, thank you very much for taking the time and, and um, pouring your heart out to our listeners. Again, these are real stories, and this is something that I want our coroners and our police officers to understand and know really what it's like from a victim point of view. I teach this all the time, but me standing in front of a classroom teaching death notification isn't the same as you talking about it because you lived sure. it. I, I, you know, I live it from my side. You lived it mm-hmm. from your side, totally different sides. 
So I appreciate you taking time to share with our audience and, and, um, and hopefully things come up, you get another book out or something like that that helps. Look, let me know. We'll have you back on the show. Well, and if there's another topic you want to address sometime that we we'll go more in depth into what we've talked about, give me a, give me a shout out and I'll be happy to come on and, uh, and uh, chat with you. Absolutely. All right, Will, but you have the, a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too. All right. I'm back with you. I know that you found that conversation fascinating. My heart went out to Bill as he was telling that story of William getting killed. And and as as I pointed out to him, even after all these years, it's still pretty fresh to him. Uh, and he's done a lot of good from William's death. He's done, he's turned it around and done a lot of good. Doesn't bring William back. Doesn't uh, doesn't change that. Uh, but he has focused that energy into some good. Uh, I love what Bill does. I love that he, he can, he's able to speak and and to bring some of that training to you and I on remembering, if nothing else, that those moments that that notification is given is something that will be remembered forever. And you are giving somebody the worst news of their life, and it will be the worst day of their life in most instances. And you're the one delivering that. And how you deliver it means a lot. So, Bill, thank you for sharing your heart. Thank you for uh, coming on the Corner Talk podcast and, and sharing your heart with us. I appreciate that. You're doing a lot of good work, my friend, and keep that up. We hope uh, to have Bill uh, maybe help us with some online training. I have asked him off air uh, that maybe we're going to work some things out and we can have some death notification, some uh, family interaction training, things like that, turn it into a video course and uh, have Bill do a, a big majority of that training and, and really bring some of that home uh, to how we can do things better. Uh, he teaches this all over the country, and so uh, maybe it's time to take some of what he teaches and make it into an online training. And, and of course, we do a lot of that, and I would be, be honored to have, do that for him. And, of course, if you're out there listening and, and you teach and you have some good death investigation or criminal investigation course and, and you would think, huh, I'd like to maybe have an online course myself but you don't know where to get started and don't know how to reach out to me. I can help you with that. Uh, we can help you do the recording. Uh, we can have an affiliate share or whatever you want to do. We can work those details out, uh, but I can get you online, put you part of our academy and uh, we can, uh, we can then teach a lot more students the information that you have uh, more so than you can by traveling around the country. So just, just an additional arm. So I'd love to help you with that. So remember we are in a season getting really, really close to Christmas. And you've got to find during this time of year, people that need that extra blessing. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's just a loving touch. Maybe it's just call somebody and spend some time with them. Uh, but there's a lot of needs this time of year. And uh, we see that in our industry, we see a lot of people give up, a lot of suicides, a lot of people die uh, because they're just depressed, they're sick anyway, but they just go ahead and die during this time because their family's not around, things like that. We see that. Find a way to be a blessing to someone, reach out to them, pat them on the back, support them. Do what you can during this season uh, to help your fellow man. Till next week, everybody, be safe. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coronertraining. 
3617, 1024 scene en route to morgue. 